0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: In the history of Christian architecture, we often find contemporaries writing about the fact that a building like the Hagia Sophia or Notre Dame is beautiful because it reflects the glory of God, or God has allowed us to make this beautiful building because we are in his favor. But that kind of connection between the material manifestation of a building and what happens within the building, there's a very strong boundary in Islam.
0: That's Professor Geraldine Dodds, Harlequin Adair Daman Chair in the History of Art at Sarah Lawrence College. She received her BA from Barnard College and her MA and PhD from Harvard University. Her scholarly work has centered on issues of transculturation and how groups form identities through art and architecture with particular reference to Christians, Jews, and Muslims in medieval Spain. She's the author of Architecture and Ideology in Early Medieval Spain and New York Masjid, the Mosques of New York, and co-author of Arts of Intimacy, Christians, Jews, and Muslims in the Making of Castilian Culture, among other books and publications. She was the recipient of the Cruz de la Orden de Mérito Civil, Cross of the Order of Civil Merit from the Government of Spain in 2018. She served as Dean of Sarah Lawrence College from 2009 to 2015. Welcome, Jerry.
1: Hello, Max. What a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Oh, it is my pleasure, and especially because we go back a ways, and we won't reveal to the audience how long, but certainly I am well aware of how you began your formation as a scholar, but would you tell everybody else how you came to concentrate in your areas of study?
1: Well, you're right to say areas of study, because when I began, they were two separate areas. There was medieval art and Islamic art. And so they were quite separate, even though they're enclosed within one another, right? This Islamic art, for instance, in Spain, where most of my work is, happens in the Middle Ages, and it doesn't happen in isolation. I was really interested in that interaction. Perhaps I was more interested in the relationships that art revealed between groups that other people largely considered quite separate, Muslims and Christians. There was a wonderful professor in the place that you and I both went to graduate school, Oleg Grabar, who really expanded one's notion of how one could look at the arts as a document of relationships between people, not just political, but also social. And that made this inquiry that I've always done into the relationship between Christians and Muslims in the Middle Ages possible.
0: Is it fair, though, for American audiences who are just now starting to learn about Islam and usually incorrectly? These faiths of Abraham in the medieval period were not seen as these alien beings one from the other. Is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely, Max. Christians and Jews were peoples of the book. They shared certain prophecies and certain texts with Muslims, and they were only considered not to be as advanced in their understanding as people who had accepted the final revelation of the Quran. So they were allowed to live and practice their religion under Islamic rule. On the other hand, the situation was quite a bit more ambivalent under Christian rule because there was no paradigm in Christianity for the existence of alternate faiths.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that created a much more complicated situation.
0: You are, of course, leading a whole generation of undergraduates at Sarah Lawrence, and you recently ended a course description with this question, is Islamic art the correct name for what we study here? Tell us what you mean by that question and how it's framed in that class.
1: Islamic art refers to the religion, Islam. And so really the term Islamic art would mean this religious art. And there certainly is Islamic art. There are manuscripts of the Quran, But it doesn't represent all the arts that are produced in the lands of Islam, in lands ruled by Muslims or in which Muslims had an incredibly important impact. Those arts can't properly be called Islamic arts.
0: We don't speak of a Christian art and then incorporate tables and chairs, but we seem to do that with Islamic art. Is that true?
1: Why don't you answer this question, Max? (laughs) (laughs) Here, allow allow me to take that over and say it in my own words.
0: <laughs> Please.
1: Right. So when we talk about the arts of Europe, we don't say, now we're going to discuss Christian arts. We don't consider Michelangelo under Christian arts. So the idea that we use the term Islamic arts suggests that arts made under the hegemony of Muslim rulers is somehow particular and different and separate from a general canon of the arts.
0: So you're fixing that.
1: Oh, there's no fixing it. I mean, there's no fixing (laughs) it. There's no fixing anything. There's just a Mm -hmm. constant process of learning and growing. That
0: is what makes the Academy so great, is you guys actually don't have to fix anything. And those of us outside of the ivy-covered walls... (laughs) we have to fix things. But seriously now, just a second here. In today's architecture, moving outside of the arts to architecture, which is a field you are steeped in completely, is what we would call Islamic architecture changing to adapt to different traditions and mores?
1: Well, that's the other problem with the term Islamic, is that it embraces half the world and supposes that an Islamic art in Indonesia and an Islamic art in medieval Spain and an Islamic art in North Africa or Iran are part of one category, and that's kind of a reductive reasoning we don't want to look to. If you're thinking about mosques, there's another thing. which Mosques which are, in essence, Islamic, but I don't really call mosque architecture a kind of general islamic architecture and the reason is that what happens in the mosque is supposed to be quite independent of the building in the history of christian architecture we often find contemporaries writing about the fact that a building like the hagia sophia or notre dame is beautiful because it reflects the glory of god or god has allowed us to make this beautiful building because we are in his favor. But that kind of connection between the material manifestation of a building and what happens within the building, there's a very strong boundary in Islam, Mm -hmm. a material thing. God can only be known with the mind. God can't be known through any kind of representation, obviously not the representation of images of animate beings, but also not through a material building.
0: So one topic that I'm sure is very much upon you at Sarah Lawrence is that the so-called Western tradition is under fire in so many ways. How are you helping your students come to terms with the value of studying the Western past while acknowledging the exclusion of so many other cultures from undergraduate education?
1: Ah, you assume I'm trying to reconcile them to that, do you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, perhaps you're rubbing the slate clean. I don't know. Tell us.
1: Well, the first thing is to change their idea of what constitutes the Western tradition. For instance, when I teach a survey of the history of art, I'll say I'm teaching the history of the art in the West, but the West is a geographical place, not the West as a political concept. And it just so happens that in the West as a geographical place, it includes the Muslims of Spain. It includes the Mamluks in Egypt. It includes a lot of African hegemonies. That If we're going to say this is Western art, then let's make the West what it was, which was an enormously plural place. When I first took a survey in the history of art as a college student, We began with the ancient Near Eastern empires of the Tigris and Euphrates, and then we went on to Egypt, because those were considered to be the cradles of civilization. But they were cannily co-opted, because when we came around, say, to the 13th century or to the 16th century, all of a sudden, the ancient Near East and Egypt had disappeared from our survey. (laughs) And it had disappeared from our survey because, in the moment in which, for instance, we studied Leonardo in Italy, there were Muslims in the ancient Near East and there were Muslims in North Africa. And of course, that stopped being the West, correct? Mm -hmm. What we're looking at is the West as it was conceived by the papacy, not a geographical West, but a West which was, in its very nature, Christian. I suppose when I teach this, the contribution that I'm most passionate about, I don't know if it's going to have any impact, but the contribution I'm most passionate about is not to make that omission, is to show the West as a place which had Ottomans and had Mamluks and had Ayyubids and Syrians. And if not, I don't have the right to include Egypt in the ancient Near East. And you know what happens then? That means mm. Egypt and the ancient Near East are the cradle of a civilization that doesn't exist in Europe.
0: That's fantastic. And maybe the Fox News commentators could take your class so they could understand (laughs) that we're not a Christian nation and the West is not a Christian construct. But speaking of helping people to decolonize your curricula, what does that mean? How does that work in higher education to decolonize the studies that you participate in as a leader?
1: At Sarah Lawrence, the faculty does this because... We believe in it quite sincerely, but mm-hmm. what I just spoke about, I consider a kind of decolonization. That is helping to change one's image of really what constitutes the West.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's not an apology tour, you're saying. That's simply telling yeah, the no, facts. That's, right, and it's exactly.
1: exciting, right?
0: You're helping younger people disembarrass themselves of a misapprehension, which is about the evil West. And in fact, it's not quite so simple. It's a geographical construct in your world.
1: It's the construct that's evil, right?
0: Turning to another topic a lot of Americans don't know much about, which is a country that you're close to, Spain. It features so prominently in your research, and you've written about this country as a kaleidoscope of political alliances. And visiting the different regions in Spain, you often feel like you're in different countries. How has it persisted as a country? How has it not broken apart today as of this recording?
1: If you look at maps of historical maps of Spain, you'll see that there are maybe 20 different little principalities, but the ones that were ruled by Muslims will be in like dark gray, and the ones that were ruled by Christians will be white. There's always this assumption that the main juxtaposition was between Christians and Muslims. And when I said that the alliances are kaleidoscopic, what I really meant was that wasn't the case at all. People allied themselves with other rulers, sort of as they wished, or as it was strategically most interesting for them. And those rulers were often Muslims or Christians. Actually, in medieval Spain, if you were a Christian ruler, you might ally yourself with a Muslim to fight against your brother who you hated. The notion that this was seven centuries of battles against Christians and Muslims is an entirely artificial construct. It was so complex.
0: Here's another complex one, which you'll be able to sort out for us. You have written and taught about the ways that a common European identity was forged through art and architecture, but that within that, there were fractious differences. So I wanted to bring you up to date to the present and ask you how you view the forces behind Brexit and other nationalist movements in Europe today through the lens of history.
1: People who are yearning for a monoculture in Europe are yearning for something that never existed. Those people are essentially yearning for a Europe run by the papacy because it was the papacy that promoted this idea that Europe was by its very nature Christian, synonymous with Christendom.
0: Jerry, American politicians often speak of American exceptionalism. It's one of those wonderful phrases that is cited everywhere. Are there other such proclamations over history that mirror this one? Or is this one so exceptional? <laughs> We're the only country that looks at ourselves this very crazy way.
1: You know, I could probably sit down and write you an essay about that, but I don't think I could make an answer that would be interesting within the context so, of this group. Let me see if so there's no any... So no pithy
0: podcast answer you're saying? there's nothing. To I, yeah,
1: ahead. I don't have a pithy podcast answer. If America doesn't come to embrace its own diversity, it will certainly cease to be exceptional.
0: And remember, President Obama said, well, you know, yes, of course, the United States is exceptional and Russia is exceptional. And he went on and on and it inflamed the right because he failed to understand that we are a shining city on the hill.
1: If there was anything that ever made us exceptional, it would be the concept the unrealized concept of pluralism on which we were founded and which we then deny by perpetuating slavery. So if we want to consider ourselves exceptional, we better move around to imbricating that part of our nature into our very identity.
0: You have the next generation in your clutches. You have albeit a very super-specialized group of young people. I might be in their
1: clutches, you know.
0: (laughs) But are the views of undergraduates today leading us more towards that type of nation?
1: Certainly my undergraduates. They're open and questioning and compassionate, and they're passionate about social justice. So the idea that I have them in my clutches... Is funny because I often feel in their clutches, but very much to the good.
0: Yeah. But when you and I were growing up and we were social justice oriented, how would you compare that type of activism from our youth to this one?
1: I think our activism was a lot more comfortable. What we know today is more grave than what we knew then there was something so utopian and simple about our vision of a new world and how we could change it i would say if there's one thing that connects my work to what's happening now is the understanding of how violent an assumption that one group is less privileged than another in your own society. How violent that can be and how damaging that can be to a social fabric. The contemporary assumption that somehow we're doing things better is maybe the most dangerous thing I've ever seen.
0: I guess it's true that there was a utopian quality, although thinking back to the fractious protests that I certainly marched in. There were so many different factions. Youth against war and fascism, students for a democratic society. There were people with different agendas, different aspirations. There are more today in part because people are more concerned about more issues facing human rights than even then.
1: You know, the truth never hurt anything. I'm not the right person to be saying this. This is like this is like high political philosophy and I'm a medieval art historian. But the emergence of truth and the emergence of hurt are really important footsteps. Mm -hmm. You know?
0: Yeah. Now, I want to turn to another country, Jerry, which is Turkey. And a country that both of us know pretty well. Not so long ago, Hagia Sophia was repurposed into a mosque, having started its life as a church. A mosque and then a museum and now a mosque. Can you talk a bit about that transition and what it means to you as an historian and as a citoyen du monde. <laughs> I'm glad you said
1: citoyen du monde. I think it's perfectly fine. So the Hagia Sophia began as a church. It was converted to a mosque, then it it was secularized and converted mm-hmm. to a museum. Why should it not be a mosque? It's not being denied to the scholarly community. People can still visit it it can still be a tourist attraction. But I don't understand the notion that somehow post-enlightenment values of, of a secular meaning for monuments should take precedence over a local religious investment. Sometimes we make our secular investment in works of art and architecture, a kind of religion in itself, and we assume that it takes precedence over everything else. I mean, would you suggest somehow that Notre Dame ought not to be a cathedral?
0: No, I think that for a lot of people though, the decision was a political one, not a religious one. That is, it had to no, do with Islamism. I'm
1: sh- shocked shock there's gambling going on in this establishment. Of course, it was a political decision. It was a political decision to secularize it. Do you think it was secularized because somebody thought that it would be better for world culture? No, it, everything has been, all of these big monuments were conceived. Hagia Sophia, oh my God, the Hagia Sophia was conceived as a super political building. It was a building mm-hmm. that made Justinian looked like the Emperor Hadrian with an enormous dome over his head. It implied, even though he was a Christian, that he was also a Roman ruler. Why was it desired by Mehmed? It was desired because the Ottomans were going to be the new Roman rulers. I mean, all of these big monuments are conceived with political meaning. All of a sudden we're going, oh my heavens, a political decision about a world monument? Excuse me, let me defend my post-Enlightenment European right to come to this monument without having to be bothered by the fact that it's a mosque.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. And speaking <laughs> of emperors, yes, 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 yes. But I, speaking of emperors, just thinking of Justinian, Donald mm-hmm. Trump, <laughs> if that's not too abrupt a transition, mandated the use of classicizing architectural forms in federal buildings, which was mercifully struck down after he headed to Mar-a-Lago, which, by the way, itself is hardly classicizing. It's a pastiche of Spanish and Venetian and Portuguese antecedents. Could you share an example of one of your favorite state-sponsored works of architecture?
1: Sure, the Alhambra in Granada. Yes. It's as intimate and delicate an expression of power as you will find. And it's state-sponsored mm-hmm. architecture. I don't want to break your heart, Max, but it's also a political statement. Yes. It's many political statements. But how different from that grandiose, silly, callow notion that that other person whose name you mentioned, and that I don't think we ought to mention too often,
0: mm-hmm. said. <laughs> hmm it doesn't have the colossal reception hall, the space that emperors typically would demand. It has all these intimate spaces, indoors and outdoors, as well as assembly spaces. And that's part of its magic, I think.
1: Yes. Power was expressed by the exclusivity, right? Not by this sort of overwhelming, hit you over the head with a mallet monumentality, but by the notion that you were important because you you could come into so intimate a space in relationship to a sultan, right?
0: Mm -hmm. So here we are in a country that was going through, along with so many other countries, the removal of statues that were felt to be offensive, retrospectively. What's your view on how municipalities and governments should look at this topic in the U.S.?
1: There's a lot of really interesting writing being produced by people who are a lot more knowledgeable than I am. But my thought is that the erection of monuments and the erasure of monuments ought to be in keeping with collective values. They don't last forever and they ought not to last forever. It's a very good thing for them to be kept in museums so they can be recontextualized and so... The discourse we decide about as a community can be expressed and understood, but how could you have one rule?
0: Mm-hmm. Jerry, is there a class that you would love to teach a course that you have yet to create and offer that's in the back of your mind these days?
1: What an interesting question i y- Yes, there is. I want to teach a course in the arts of Latin America. I touch on them in a couple of my courses, but I think that if I were going to go to graduate school today, that would be the area I would be most interested in. I mean, talk about the intersection of peoples and values, religions and ideas. And an incredibly passionate, expressive series of arts growing from it. I can't imagine anything more interesting. The second I retire, I'm going to start taking courses.
0: (laughs) I think you'd better keep teaching courses, Jerry. We need more of your voice and your intelligence, helping a next generation come out of their chrysalis. And I want to thank you for making time today to join Art Scoping. Really appreciate it.
1: It was really a pleasure to chat with you, Max.
0: We've been speaking today with Professor Geraldine Dodds, Harlequin Adair Daman Chair in the Faculty of Art History at Sarah Lawrence College. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Art Scoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.